Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Xi Jinping has set out clear objectives for China. He wants to make the country great again, better in fact than any other country in the world. He often refers to this as the great rejuvenation. Mr. Xi promotes the concept of one state, one people, one ideology, one party, and of course, one leader. Through resolve and tenacity, he says, China has gone through the test of winds and rains and now sees beautiful scenes unfolding. But who can Xi Jinping trust to pursue his China dream? And what are the implications of his autocratic style of leadership? I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today Chunhan Wong, a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of the recent book, Party of One, The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. Chunhan, welcome to China in Context. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, a key theme of your book is the way in which Xi Jinping uses the Chinese Communist Party to consolidate his personal leadership. You lived in Beijing for a number of years. What did you observe? Yeah, so I was actually based in Beijing for five years, from 2014 to 2019. Uh, I left when the Chinese government declined to renew my visa. I moved to Hong Kong, stayed there for close to four years before I moved back to my home country of Singapore last year. And uh, during the time I spent in Beijing and Hong Kong, uh, one could sense a palpable shift in the political mood in both cities, where Xi Jinping's tightened control over the Communist Party and his clampdown on dissent raised the stakes for Chinese officials and ordinary citizens who might consider speaking up against policies they disagreed with or add their grievances in public or spoke to foreign media or even foreigners in general. So that made our jobs much harder to do uh, because we great, depend greatly on the courage and the goodwill of our contacts and sources. And another striking shift that I noticed during my time in China was this emergence of a personality cult around Xi Jinping. The party used increasingly sycophantic language to praise Xi Jinping uh, they gave him reverential titles to sort of convey his uh, authority. For example, titles like core leader, the people's leader, and the people's leader in particular is um, in Chinese you say Renming Ling Xiu, which is a direct echo of Mao Zedong's title of Wei Da Ling Xiu, a great leader. Uh, to the extent that, you know, there are people who even say that Xi Jinping is the second coming of Mao. Nevertheless, Xi Jinping obviously can't single-handedly run a huge country such as China. He needs supporters in the army, in business and in regional government. So how does he ensure that such people are loyal to him and his interpretation of socialism with Chinese characteristics? At the risk of oversimplifying, uh, I think we can say that Xi Jinping accumulates and maintains his power by uh, inspiring fervor and instilling fear. So fervor comes from things like nationalism and ideological training. For example, we have constant propaganda drum beats about the China dream of national rejuvenation, which is in short, make China great again. Uh, we also have talk about you know, the threats that Western powers pose to China's revival. We also have a uh, populist and egalitarian messaging about things like common prosperity, which sort of harks back to Mao Zedong, even Marxist ideals. Although you might say that Marxist messaging has been softened in recent years, but it's still there. Uh, the other aspect, which is fear, I think that comes from Xi Jinping's sort of relentless use of crackdowns on corruption and other disciplinary issues, uh, which have gone on for more than a decade now. So basically, since it started in late 2012, when Xi Jinping became General Secretary of the Communist Party, uh, about 5 million people have been punished for all sorts of uh, 
misconduct from outright corruption, abuse of power, to things as mundane as, you know, dereliction of duty, uh, formalism, which is sort of this term they use to describe, you know, people who do unproductive things at work to pretend that they are complying with uh, Beijing's orders. Um, even extravagant and hedonistic behavior, which is anything from, you know, arranging lavish weddings and parties uh, at the public expense. This is the sort of thing that Xi Jinping punishes. And there are challenges for Xi in how he deploys uh, both fear and fervor. I think for fervor to work, you need to generate uh, performance legitimacy. People need to feel that their leader is delivering on these grand promises that he's making. And on this front, I think she has, over the years, claimed some victories in terms of fighting poverty, uh, protecting the environment. But more recently, we've seen areas where he's seen her fallen short. For example, how he handled COVID, uh, zero COVID policies, which caused a lot of pain economically and a lot of uh, you know infringements of what people think are their uh, personal rights. You know, people who were locked down under you know, mass controls over entire cities, a lot of people were very unhappy with that. Uh, in terms of the economy, we've seen a lot of problems there in the last couple of years. Youth unemployment is at record highs. Property market, which is a core pillar of the overall economy, is in dire straits. And foreign investors are wavering on their commitment to the Chinese market. So are you saying then that people fear Xi Jinping? So I think to some extent you could say so. I mean, first of all, there aren't any meaningful opinion polling in China of the kind that we see in Western society. So it's hard to say exactly how people think of Xi. Uh, but in my time in China, you, there were people who would wholeheartedly express their support for him, thanks to things like, you know, his anti-corruption campaign, you know, and his efforts to fight poverty. So people who directly benefited from his policies, they do voice, you know, support for him. They, they And in my opinion, in my interaction with them, there's quite genuinely held opinions. Uh, but there are also people who are very afraid. Uh, you might count in those ranks like party officials, private business people, uh, intelligentsia, academics, who have over the past decade been attacked, been targeted by Xi Jinping's crackdowns. And this is, I think, a very key element of Xi Jinping's approach to governance. He, in order to ensure that he remains in control, he wants people to fear him. So there is, it is in his interest to continue perpetuating this fear to continuous crackdowns. Uh, because there are limits to his ability to deploy, to inspire fervor. So, but you could always inspire more fear. Well, in your book, you note that Xi Jinping purges political rivals, but you've explained that there are actually quite a lot of different ways in which someone can be purged, and it depends on the person and the allegations which have been made. I also found it fascinating to learn that purges have been a feature of communist China right since it was established nearly 75 years ago. Why do you think that is? You know, purges are not unique to in the Communist Party in China. It's, in fact, uh, common across Marxist-Leninist parties or, you know, even beyond that. Uh, for example, in Russia, we've seen purges happen since the time of Lenin. You know, the Bolsheviks purging the Mensheviks, Stalin, you know, engaged in the Great Purge in the 1930s. So in some ways, you know, that, that it's, not, it's not unique. Uh, in China, even before the People's Republic was founded, you know, the very first general secretary of the Communist Party was purged, you know, in the, in the 20s. So there is this sort of tradition, so to speak. That's how scores are settled in the party. That's how people in the party exert their authority, uh, how, they, you know, how they remove their rivals. So in some ways, Xi Jinping is sort of carrying forth this tradition, this sort of the tactics that people before him have used is, is not entirely an innovation. Although you could say that Xi Jinping has carried this out in a way that we haven't seen 
for a very long time. We've not seen purges of this scale and of this uh, length and in, in terms of time period since the Mao era. So he sort of brought things back to a period that people thought was gone. You know, people thought we had, China had left this uh, period, dark period of history behind after the death of Mao Zedong. And instead, Xi Jinping has sort of brought them closer back to that. And that I think a lot of people are not so comfortable with that. When I consulted experts about recent appointments to senior positions in the Chinese Communist Party, many of them told me that Xi Jinping has surrounded himself with yes-men, acolytes. And yet... In 2023, we saw the removal of the foreign minister and the defence minister, as well as the dismissal of a number of army generals. So I'm wondering, if Xi Jinping is surrounded by loyalists, why does he keep sacking them? Yes, this is an interesting uh, phenomenon we've seen over the past year. And I, I would say, based on what we know so far, in terms of public disclosures and news reports about what happened, it seems that these purges were driven more by allegations of personal misconduct, such as corruption and other indiscretions, rather than political disloyalty. So it's not that these people were disloyal to Xi or trying to plot against him, at least as far as we can tell. Uh, it's more that they had personal problems that perhaps had gone undetected and had been surfaced to Xi, uh, and therefore he had to take action against them. You know, the one thing to know is that a lot of people in the senior ranks right now, uh, they, they have very little incentive to oppose Xi. They owe their rise in the system to Xi Jinping. So, but what, what has happened, I think Xi Jinping has sort of used this fear uh, of him and also the, the threat of punishment under the party's uh, anti-corruption purges for these to make his subordinates sort of watch each other. There's this um, incentive a rather perverse one, you might argue, which is people around below Xi, his subordinates are actually snitching, monitoring each other, plotting each other. And this, in some ways, actually is beneficial for Xi because he is sort of above the fray and people below him are actually performing his job to some extent for him. So I think in terms of Xi's ability to maintain control, this sort of environment, his, his faucet within the leadership actually is beneficial for him. I want to talk about a crucial international relationship for Xi Jinping, his friendship with Vladimir Putin. They met twice last year. Uh, Mr Xi said that consolidating and developing long-term good neighbourly relations with Russia is consistent with historical logic and a strategic choice for China, which will not be changed by any turn of events. What do you make of his analysis of the relationship? Um, I think one thing to know about the Xi-Putin relationship is that I think there's two main levels to it. There's one which is the state-to-state -state level, and the other one is the personal connection between the two of them. And I think if you look at the personal level, I think it's quite clear that there, there is a rapport between them. There seems to be a degree of familiarity that they show for each other and respect that they show for each other, which you don't see as much when Xi or Putin interact with other leaders. For example, you know, they will exchange birthday greetings. They show like body language when they meet each other that they, they don't often show with other people. So you could perhaps attribute this to the sort of leadership they both represent, the type of leadership, the type of authoritarian systems that they run, and their shared disdain for what they see as Western efforts to try to contain their country. So they feel this sort of being kindred spirits. But at the state-to-state -state level, I think it's much more nuanced. Uh, yes, China and Russia have you know maintained very close ties throughout recent times, especially in the wake of the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. China has maintained very close relations with Russia. But the thing to remember is that China and Russia's partnership, at least in modern times, is a marriage of convenience. It has been for some time. Uh, there is a long history of distrust and mutual suspicion between the two sides. 
And even within living memory, you know, there was an armed border clash between the two countries when, you know, the Soviet Union and the Chinese troops, you know, they had engaged in actually a, a, a small shooting conflict in 1969. So th there is this uh, longstanding distrust between the two sides. Um, insofar as their relationship is strong, it's because they both see a common enemy and it, both sides see in each other a strategic partner with a sort of clout and weight that few other countries can provide for them. So as long as this global geopolitical situation remains in place, this relationship between China and Russia will endure. Well, lastly, looking to the future, do you have any insight into who Xi Jinping might have selected as his successor? This is the million dollar question, but I believe that at this stage, predicting Xi's successor is a fool's errand because uh, I think that Xi's succession plan is arguably one of the most sensitive secrets that he keeps and something that he probably doesn't even share with his most trusted associates, especially those people who fancy themselves potential successors. Uh, as I explained in my book, there's many ways for authoritarian leaders to plan succession, uh, but only the leader himself truly knows you know, what consideration and what factors matter most to him. You know, is it his personal safety and retirement? Is it whether his legacy can survive him? You know, is he worried that if he names a successor ahead of time, that will undermine his own authority because the successor will start to build his own political base? You know, only Xi Jinping himself truly knows which of these concerns matter most to him and which one he'll give the most weight to and shape his potential choice of successor. You know, in terms of who's next, you know, that sort of depends on Xi Jinping's personal timeline. If he wants to hand over power, you know, further down the line, he wants to stay in power for a long time, he may skip over an entire generation of officials. So the current Politburo, the 24-member Politburo, those people currently in the Politburo right now might miss out because they're sort of too close to Xi Jinping in age. We may have to look further down the line in terms of the hierarchy to see, for example, people born in the 70s. They may have a better chance of succeeding Xi if Xi decides that he needs to stay in power for longer to fulfill his agenda. Well, thank you, Chun Han. You've made a range of really fascinating points. I wish we'd had more time. That was Chun Han Wong, a correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, author of the recent book, Party of One, The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.